Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of sexual situations, war, and human remains. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A blanket of fog hovered over Lane Cove River in North Sydney, Australia. It was New Year's Day, 1963 and the summer sun had just started to peek through the mangrove trees, arching over the water. Two teenage boys, Michael McCormick and Dennis Weeway, strolled through the mist, kicking piles of leaves and poking under rocks. They were hunting for something, but it wasn't treasure or lost coins. They were scouring the woods for golf balls from the nearby Chatswood Country Club. Their morning search served two purposes, got them out of the house away from their parents, and it allowed them to make a little spending money, selling the balls back to golfers. That morning, as the boys trekked along the river toward Fuller's Bridge, they stumbled on something a lot larger than a golf ball. A man laid on the ground, partially naked. McCormick and Weeway likely called out to him, but he didn't respond. As they approached, they realized he wasn't breathing. He was dead. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Bogle Chandler case, which captivated Australia in the 1960s. This week, we'll explore the lives of the victims, a distinguished physicist and a charming young woman, along with the party that led to their demise. Next week, we'll dive into the investigation, which uncovered a web of intriguing theories involving CIA assassinations, poison, death lasers, and mysterious deadly gases. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. The story you're about to hear is about two people crossing paths by chance, with irreversible consequences. The first person you'll meet is Gilbert Bogle. In order to understand what led Gilbert to the most consequential decision of his life, you first need to understand how he made his career. 
Gilbert Bogle was born on January 5, 1924, in Wanganui, New Zealand, a quaint coastal city on the country's North Island. By all accounts, it was an idyllic place to grow up. The city was settled on the banks of its namesake river, where it pours into the Tasman Sea. It offered fertile farmlands, lush, green hills, and sunny beaches. And whether it was the teeming natural world that surrounded him or some innate talent, Gilbert, or Gib, as he was nicknamed, showed a keen mind for science. In 1942, at the age of 18, Gilbert enrolled in Victoria University College in nearby Wellington to pursue a degree in physics. Being the overachiever that he was, he also dabbled in music and foreign languages. While he studied physics, Gilbert discovered a passion for cryogenics, or the study of ultra-low temperatures. It's unknown exactly what attracted him to the field. Perhaps it reminded him of the crisp waters of the Wanganui River, or it scratched his itch to perform scientific experiments. Either way, Gilbert likely understood how important cryogenics would be to a diverse array of industries, agriculture, communications, and even nuclear research. Soon, he was hooked. As funny as it sounds, cryogenics became his life. With his field of study locked down, Gilbert's future seemed to be following a neat path, as orderly as one of his lab experiments. But that was about to change, because war loomed on the horizon, threatening to throw everything into chaos. As an ally of the UK and the US, New Zealand drafted many young men to fight the Axis powers in World War II. Men like Gilbert were shipped to battlefields all over the world. So, by the time Gilbert reached military age in 1945, he was likely resigned to this same fate. That is, until he learned of an exception. One that might save him from death. Happy birthday, Gib! Doesn't feel so happy. Oh, you get drafted? Not yet, but it's only a matter of time. And our boys are sitting ducks over there. Did you see these new Nazi rockets use liquid oxygen propellant? Leave it to you, Gib. Always thinking like a physicist. Hello, Professor Florence. Gilbert, can I see you for a moment? Oh, <clears throat> uh, what can I do for you, sir? It's not what you can do for me. It's what I can do for you. Uh, sir? I couldn't help overhearing your dilemma. It's not that I don't want to beat those Nazi brutes. I just... I understand. You don't want to die yet, and you don't have to. There's an exception for promising academics like you. Really, sir? If a university faculty member vouches for you and says your research is too important to send you to war, your service can be deferred, sometimes indefinitely. I wouldn't be dodging the draft? Gilbert, this war won't be one with bullets, tanks, or infantry. It'll be one with minds. That's our greatest weapon. Intellects like yours. Men and women who can crack codes, invent radar, and push the envelope of science. Cryogenics is already showing promise in military applications. <laughs> That's the fighting spirit. Now get to work. We have a war to win. And just like that, Professor David Florence convinced the military to let Gilbert avoid active duty and continue his work in the cryogenics lab. Spared from the front lines, Gilbert concentrated on academics. 
He distinguished himself so much that in 1947, he was selected as a Rhodes Scholar to attend Oxford University in England. Gibb traveled over 10,000 miles across the globe to England, where his eyes were open to a whole new world. At Oxford, he brought his background in cryogenics to the burgeoning fields of paramagnetic resonance, the study of atoms with unpaired electrons. He co-authored several studies that appeared in the journal Proceedings of the Physical Society. One of Gilbert's colleagues was Nicholas Curdy, a former world record holder for achieving the lowest temperature in a lab. According to researcher Cameron Hazelhurt, he cited Gilbert's doctoral thesis as a kind of textbook for students. And while Gilbert was working on low temperature physics by day, things were heating up in another area of his life. Around this time, Gilbert met his future wife, Vivian, a fellow alum of Victoria University College. It's unclear how they started dating, but anyone could see why Vivian fell for the charming Oxford physicist. Gilbert likely saw his relationship with Vivian as the next logical step in his life. Everything to this point had followed an orderly progression. University, check. Career, check. Next on that list, marriage. On September 11th, 1950, Gilbert and Vivian tied the knot. Shortly after that, Gilbert accepted a teaching post at the University of Otago, New Zealand's oldest university. There, he established what his former professor, David Florence, dubbed the Bogle School of Low-Temperature Research. But though Gilbert quickly made a name for himself at Otago, it was likely a culture shock after his time at Oxford. By most accounts, he was now a big fish in a small pond. Others noticed this too. One of Gilbert's old Oxford instructors said he was wasting his abilities at Otago. Gilbert took this to heart. Much like in his earlier days, he wasn't afraid to experiment. He sought out new job opportunities, particularly one at a prestigious lab across the Tasman Sea in Australia. In 1956, Gilbert and Vivian moved to Sydney, and Gilbert began work in the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. The CSIRO, as it was known, was a lab funded by the Australian government that examined a wide range of issues everything from energy to agriculture to manufacturing. During World War II, they even helped with military applications such as radar. While Gilbert specialized in cryogenics, his work was useful in other fields as well. He became involved in the research and development of masers, which were essentially lasers that used electromagnetic waves instead of light. Being involved in such cutting-edge work, it didn't take long for Gilbert to distinguish himself. Researcher Cameron Hazelhart wrote that by 1962, he was regarded as, quote, the most brilliant member of the staff. With such glowing recommendations, he likely began to feel like something of a rock star. Because that's not the only recognition the up-and-coming scientist received. Rumors swirled that Gilbert was receiving undue attention from women around the campus. And though Gilbert had a seemingly perfect life, perhaps his desire to experiment spread outside the walls of his lab. Still, even with some alleged flings, Gilbert didn't lose track of his main priority, science. That same year, he caught the attention of a prominent organization in the U.S., the Bell Research Lab. 
Bell, named after the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, was a prestigious research facility in both industrial and military technology. At the end of 1962, they hired Gilbert to come to New Jersey to study quantum electronics. So on December 21st, while he made some final arrangements to leave Australia for the U.S., he attended CSIRO's Christmas barbecue. There, he mingled with co-workers and friends. For some, like Ken Nash, one of the lab's foremost photographers, it was likely a bittersweet goodbye. Uh, we're going to miss you around the lab, Gib. Thanks, Ken, but who knows? We may be back sooner than we think. Vivian might not like New Jersey. I heard they have the mafia there. <laughs> That's not the only thing you need to worry about. You know Bell Labs has a reputation for spy work, right? CIA? Pentagon? Oh, Ken, those are just rumors. The CIA doesn't care about my cryogenics work. We'll see. Well, at least we had lovely weather for your last barbecue with us. Not as lovely as that little specimen over there. Who's that? Oh, Gib, you're insatiable. Her husband is in photography. Bit of an odd character, that one. Come on, introduce me. The young woman's name was Margaret Chandler. Sparks flew between her and Gilbert, but in just ten days, everything would implode. Coming up, Margaret receives a warning. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history. Because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On April 2nd, 1934, when Gilbert Bogle was already a 10-year-old boy playing on the banks of the Wanganui River, Margaret Morfitt was born in Sydney, Australia. Details about her childhood are scarce, but when she became older, she was known as a kind, wholesome woman. That much was evident from her choice to pursue nursing as a career. At some point during the winter of 1956, Margaret met Jeffrey Chandler, a scientific photographer at the CSIRO. On December 24, 1957, when Margaret was 23, they married. On the surface, Margaret appeared to live a normal, happy life. 
She and Jeffrey had two children, and she left her career in nursing to become a stay-at-home mother and breed dachshunds. Digging deeper, however, reveals that Margaret may not have been happy. Even though Jeffrey had a stable job, the Chandlers weren't considered wealthy. Sure, he worked at the prestigious CSIRO, but he was a lowly technician amongst brilliant minds. More importantly, Margaret seemed to be well aware of Jeffrey's multiple affairs. She confided in one of her friends, Sheridan Posse, a Sydney socialite and fellow dachshund breeder. Oh, Margaret, what's wrong? It's Jeffrey again. He went out for cigarettes last night and was gone for hours. Oh, that could be anything. It's the third time this month, and each time he comes back smelling... different. Different? You know, like another woman. That louse. I'll kill him the next time I see him. (laughs) Thank you, Sheridan. I don't know what I'd do without you, but to be honest, I don't blame him for it. Since the kids were born, we haven't had that, you know, spark. That happens in every marriage. Believe me, Stephen hasn't touched me in a decade. I wonder if a little excitement would remind me how it felt before. You mean with Jeffrey, right? Oh, oh, yes, (laughs) with Jeffrey. At the time, Sydney society was highly conservative. The mere mention of sexuality was gauche, let alone an affair. So while Margaret and Sheridan were comfortable discussing private matters with each other, Margaret likely didn't want to admit that she was open to extramarital uh, excitement. On December 21st, 1963, when Margaret attended the CSIRO Christmas party, she may have been looking for exactly that. Something to break her out of her rut, to spice up her life, and maybe, just maybe, to give Jeffrey a taste of his own medicine. That's when she met Dr. Gilbert Bogle, a brilliant and charming scientist. He spoke multiple languages, was a talented musician, and studied at Oxford. By many standards, he was everything Jeffrey was not, which is what made him so alluring. You must be Margaret Chandler. Oh, uh, Dr. Bogle. Uh, Your rendition of Silent Night was lovely. Years of piano lessons finally paid off. Have you tried the eggnog? I have a rule. Don't mix eggs, milk, and sun. (laughs) That's a good one. I should probably heed that. Did you know eggnog was originally an aristocratic drink? I didn't. If that's their idea of a cocktail, I'll happily keep my place among the proletariat. Their loss. You look like a princess. (laughs) Oh, you sure know how to flatter a girl, Dr. Bogle. (laughs) Please. Call me Gib. After their chance meeting, Margaret seemed smitten with Gilbert. Even Jeffrey later recalled that she seemed taken by him. Margaret was also keen to discuss it. Sometime after the party, she quickly told Sheridan about the encounter. You should have seen him, Sheridan. Oh, he was so dreamy. Are you thinking about... You know... I don't know... Jeffrey is such a... such a brute. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Stephen and I had another fight just a few nights ago. 
I wish I had a knight in shining armor interested in me. You're right about one thing. It's fairy tale. He's moving to the state soon for some research job. I'm sure your heart will lead you in the right direction. Just don't get yourself hurt. Oh, Sheridan, you worry too much. Perhaps Sheridan should have been worried more, especially because only a few days later, Margaret received something in the mail. It was an invitation to a New Year's Eve party at the home of Ken Nash, one of the senior photographers at the CSIRO, and Gilbert Bogle's close friend. It seemed a little strange. Margaret and Jeffrey weren't close with the Nashes. Their parties were usually artsy affairs reserved for the upper crust of the lab. They never expected to be invited. But Jeffrey had suspicions about why they were. Dr. Gilbert Bogle. Perhaps his interest in Margaret went deeper than their flirtatious chat at the Christmas barbecue. Maybe he convinced his buddy Ken to invite the Chandlers because he wanted to see Margaret again. On the evening of the New Year's Eve party, Gilbert buttoned his white dress shirt, slipped into his best gray suit, and looked himself over in the mirror. He wanted to look perfect. He hoped to impress someone. His wife, Vivian, caught Gilbert studying his reflection. Honey, where's my red tie? In the closet next to the others. It's not there. I saw it yesterday. Look again. I'm looking. I don't see it. It's right here. (laughs) Thank you. It's a wonder you find anything in your lab. This tie looks good, right? Are you trying to impress someone? Oh, honey, you know I only want to impress you. Sometimes I wonder. You don't have anything to worry about. It's just a silly party at the Nashes. Want me to stay home? I will. No, you should go. I'm fine watching the kids. How late are you staying? Uh, You know how it goes. Ken starts snapping photos, then he turns on the projector, and before you know it, sun's coming up. Just don't stay too late. The kids want to see you in the morning. I won't. I promise. Little did Vivian know it would be the last time she'd ever see her husband. Meanwhile, across town, in the working-class suburb of Croydon, Margaret and Jeffrey Chandler were getting ready for the party, too. Unlike the Bogles... They were both attending. Jeffrey couldn't have cared less about his choice of tie. In fact, he refused to wear one, or a suit for that matter. Perhaps out of spite, he donned a Hawaiian shirt and sandals. Margaret, on the other hand, wanted to look her best. She put on a tasteful floral dress and fixed her hair. When they were ready, the Chandlers loaded the kids into the family car and dropped them off at Margaret's mother's home. When they got there, her mother had her own thoughts about the party to share. I don't see why you need to go. It's a party. It'll be fun. Just make sure Jeffrey doesn't drink too much. I don't want him driving the boys home drunk in the morning. I know how he is. We'll be careful, Mom. With the boys squared away, the Chandlers drove to the upscale neighborhood of Chatswood. Eucalyptus trees lined the street. There was a golf course and country club just near the Nash's home. 
everyone at the party was dressed in formal cocktail attire, which Jeffrey saw as pretentious and effete. But he'd soon find an excuse to blow off the party and leave Margaret to face her fate. Coming up, danger stalks Gilbert and Margaret. Now back to the story. It was New Year's Eve, 1962. Margaret Chandler was at a party with some of the best and brightest minds of the Australian CSIRO. She fit right in and was having a wonderful time. But her husband, Jeffrey, who actually worked there, hated it. He thought the party and all its other attendees were pretentious and snooty, so much so that around 11.30 p.m., he slipped out to buy some cigarettes. On any other night, the line likely would have angered Margaret, but not tonight, because she had her eyes on Gilbert Bogle. Once Jeffrey was out of sight, Gilbert approached Margaret. Mrs. Chandler, what a lovely surprise. Dr. Bogle, I have a hunch this isn't a surprise for you. What makes you say that? Oh, I think the scientist in you doesn't leave anything to chance. I wonder if you might have arranged our invitation. In science, you can plan for every outcome, but you never know until you experiment. Is that what this is? An experiment? Not all. More like the immutable laws of physics. Atoms colliding, electrons entering each other's orbits, causing a reaction. Quite a reaction indeed. How did Joffrey react? Oh, he hates it here. He left to buy cigarettes. Who knows when he'll be back. He'll probably miss the stroke of midnight. Oh, that's a shame. Who will you kiss? Perhaps I'll find someone. By many accounts, Margaret and Gilbert were inseparable for the rest of the night. Sources say they spent a lot of time in the Nash's backyard, even in the bushes. When the pair wasn't canoodling, there was dancing, party games, and plenty of drinking. Midnight came and went. During most of it, Jeffrey Chandler was notably absent. It wasn't until 2.45 a.m. that he returned. We don't know what he may have witnessed between Margaret and Gilbert, but it's entirely possible that after almost three hours together, they were still cozied up. According to eyewitnesses, as well as Jeffrey's own recollection, he spent another hour at the party. During that time, he pulled Gilbert aside. Perhaps to Gilbert's surprise, Jeffrey asked him to get Margaret home safely. Gilbert agreed and Jeffrey left the party for good at 4 a.m. without his wife. At 4.15, Gilbert and Margaret left too. But for them, the night was just getting started. For Auld Lang Syne, <laughs> what does that even mean? It's Scottish. Something like times gone by, I think. Huh. I hope these times don't go by too fast. Where are we going anyway? I know a spot along the river that's peaceful and secluded. You do this a lot? Drive to parks in the middle of the night? <laughs> no. You know what I mean. This isn't a one-night stand, if that's what you're getting at. There's a real connection between us, right? Our electrons are in orbit. I couldn't have said it better myself. The park it is? 
Gilbert drove them to Lane Cove River Park, only a six-minute drive from the Nash home. With miles of hiking trails along a meandering river, it was a popular destination for hikers and boaters alike. At night, however, Lane Cove was frequented by another type of adventurer. The park's nighttime visitors were a mixture of lovers and voyeurs. It was known as a lover's lane where people met for alfresco necking sessions and midnight trysts. And for people hoping to watch. That evening, or early morning, Gilbert and Margaret weren't alone. There was another car in the parking lot, which is perhaps what convinced Gilbert to move further away. Once they were parked, they got out of the car and strolled along a wooded path. Gib, I I thought I'd like this. The excitement, adrenaline, but it feels like one of those horror flicks. Trust me, no one will bother us here. It's the safest time of day. Cooler temperatures make humans less aggressive. I bet most serial killers do their work before midnight, when it's warmer. It's all cryogenics, really. How can you be sure? In nursing school, we learned about this thing, the Heisenberg uncertainty something or other. (laughs) I love it. Talk dirty to me. Kib, I just mean, you can't know anything with absolute certainty. You're right, darling. Though, I feel like both of us predicted this. Wait, Kib, do you smell something? Just your intoxicating perfume. Not that. It smells like rotten eggs. Probably just dead fish in the river. It'll pass. I know something that'll take your mind off of it. I see a spot right over there. Gilbert and Margaret found a secluded hollow in the earth between the trail and the river. It was low enough that no one walking along the trail would likely see them. As they reclined on the carpet of fallen leaves, Gilbert unbuckled his belt and slipped out of his suit pants. Margaret allowed him to slip her dress seductively over her shoulders. The two lovers kissed passionately on the riverbank, far away from their families or any prying eyes. For Gilbert, everything seemed to be going according to plan, just like one of his experiments. And it may have been exactly the excitement Margaret was looking for. Tragically, it may also have been the pair's downfall. While Gilbert and Margaret were distracted by their passions, sweating bodies, and tangled clothes, experts speculate that they may have failed to notice a mysterious toxin overtaking them. In the middle of their lovemaking, they might have begun to choke. Their vision may have been hazy and constricted, perhaps disoriented, They stood up from their bed of leaves and stumbled through the woods. Gilbert appeared to have collapsed on the trail about 40 feet from Margaret. Margaret wandered closer to the river and fell onto her back in another pile of leaves. Sometime between 5 and 6.30 in the morning, Gilbert Bogle and Margaret Chandler were dead. A couple of hours later, around 8 a.m., the two teenage boys, Michael McCormick and Dennis Weeway, found Gilbert's body. They thought he was sleeping off his New Year's Eve celebration. It seemed to make sense with the body's position on the trail and the presence of vomit nearby. But upon closer inspection, they realized Gilbert was, in fact, dead. They ran to call the police. Margaret's body lay in the distance, undiscovered. 
For the next two months, a mind-boggling investigation would force Gilbert and Margaret's private lives under the microscope and reveal more scandal than anyone had imagined. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the Bogle Chandler murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found Peter Butt's documentary and book, Who Killed Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Adam De Silva, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. It stars Tiana Camacho, Zelda Diana Black, Joe Hernandez, Tommy Arseniega, and Charlie West. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.